You are listening to Agent Court Church's audio podcast. For more information on Agent Court Church, including service times, how to connect, and campus locations, please visit our website at onechurch.to. I want to read to you from Mark chapter 14. And it says this They went to a place called Gethsemane. And Jesus said to his disciples, Sit here for a while, I pray. And he took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. And going a little further, he fell to the ground and he prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will but what you will. Then he returned to his disciples and he found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Can't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once more, he went away and he prayed the same thing. And when he came back again, he found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy and they did not know what to say to him. And returning the third time, he said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The hour has come. Look, the son of man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. You may be seated. Take uh, this cup. Sounds easy enough, but it wasn't easy for Jesus. And when you and I understand why it was not easy for Jesus, two changes are going to happen. It'll change the way we value ourselves. Secondly, it'll change the way we view the future. Good Friday 2018 is also the first day of Passover 2018. Passover is when Jewish people all around the world, including Toronto, will gather often as groups, mainly as families, to remember. Remember what? To remember that defining moment in their history where God promised to release them from 400 years of slavery and lead them to the land that he promised them. And when God promised them that, they as a people began to commemorate that with Passover. In their state of slavery, 10 times the Egyptian head of state, Pharaoh, refused to let the free labor go free. And God was certainly more patient with pride-filled Pharaoh than I was with my kids when they refused to do what was right. With my sons, the warning count only went to three. Sometimes there's some patience thrown in, you know, one, two, two and a half, two and three quarters, two and nine tenths. If you saw any movement at all, two and nine tenths, you know. God goes all the way to ten. Ten plagues, each one amping up 
the measure of the punishment for refusing to do what was right for hundreds of thousands of people. Until God gets to 10, the plague on the firstborn in the family. Now, the only way there that you could save the life of the firstborn was to substitute the life of a lamb. Where a lamb died in the place of the firstborn, God said, I will pass over you. That's where the name comes from. You won't be judged. You won't receive my wrath, my punishment. I'll pass over you. And so when a family gathers for Passover uh, to this day, there are, are five cups at the table. And whoever is presiding over the Passover meal will at different times during that Seder meal uh, take one of the cups and remind them of God's promises. And so they'll take the first cup which reminds them, I will bring you out of Egypt. Then whoever is presiding takes the second cup during the meal. It reminds them, I will free you from being slaves. I will redeem you with mighty acts. I will take you as my people. Now, are you doing the math? How many cups are left? It's called the fifth cup or the cup of Elijah. Elijah was the name that was given to the forerunner of the Messiah in the Jewish faith. The forerunner is just simply the one who goes ahead to announce the main event that is coming. They go before, here comes the king, kind of a, a role that they had. Now, the cup is such a powerful uh, symbol in biblical literature. I think I googled and read every reference to the cup in the entire Bible this past week and I discovered something very confusing about the cup because it's used to symbolize two polar opposite scenarios. You, you have on the one hand uh, King David in the Psalms saying, I will lift up the cup of salvation. And then in that favorite Psalm 23 that so many of us appreciate and value, he, he says, my cup, what does it do? My cup overflows. Your goodness, your mercy, hashed is the Hebrew word, your steadfast love. So this cup of salvation with mercy, goodness, and love. And on the other hand, you read Isaiah, and he speaks of the cup of God's wrath. Jeremiah even more specific, he said, God's cup of wrath is filled to the brim. So what is the fifth cup? Is it the cup of salvation with its uh, mercy and goodness and love? Or is it the cup of God's wrath with its judgment and its punishment? Which is it? Well, I, I, so I investigated and uh, found that there were different views amongst even different rabbis, but the two prominent views, I'll just sort of give you a quote from two different rabbis that will show the two most prominent views. One says, Elijah's cup in Judaism, the fifth ceremonial cup of wine poured during the family Seder dinner on Passover, is left untouched in honor of Elijah, who according to tradition, will arrive one day as the unknown guest to herald the advent of the Messiah. 
During the Seder dinner, biblical verses are read. The door is open briefly to welcome Elijah. In this way, the Seder dinner not only commemorates the historical redemption from Egyptian bondage of the Jewish people, but calls to their mind their future redemption when Elijah and the Messiah shall appear. So that's one view. Another rabbi writes, he says, after the conclusion of the Seder's grace after meals, there is a universally accepted custom to pour a cup of wine, the cup of Elijah, open the front door of the home, and recite several verses whereon we beseech God to pour his wrath upon our persecutors and oppressors. So which is it? Cup of God's salvation or the cup of God's wrath? Some of the wiser rabbis say, let's just put it on hold. Let's just leave it for the Messiah to resolve that one when he comes. I did figure out this much, though, that when the word cup is used in the Bible, it's referring to one's destiny in life, one's lot in life, sort of like their fate, what someone has coming to them. Jesus used it in that context a few times. He, he, re, he would refer to the cup that I am going to drink. In other words, this is what I am in for. There's almost a, a karma-like concept to it. You know, you reap what you sow. You drink from the cup what you put into the cup. You get back what you gave to others. Now, on the first Easter weekend, Jesus' disciples asked him, where are we going to uh, celebrate Passover? And Jesus gives them instructions. They make the arrangements. Jesus presides over that Passover. And during the meal, he would have taken the, the different cups. And there are three words that will help us understand what Jesus says when he celebrates this particular Passover with his disciples. And, and, and one word is remember. Another word is reunion, and the third word is replacement. Jesus says, remember. What does he ask us to remember? Remember my death. Okay, so we're to remember. Secondly, reunion. He says, I'm not going to drink from this cup until I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. So there's a reunion. He's sort of promising that there's going to be a reunion. They're going to be able to drink the cup with him in heaven. And then the third Word is replacement, replacement. He says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. It's a new covenant. Now, now his disciples that were there at the table for Passover, uh, growing up in Galilee, they would have celebrated Passover, and, and all they knew was, you know, the, the Lamb of God, you know, and, and letting it temporarily just sort of cover over their sin, the, the Passover of their sin, just passing it. And, and, and uh, not taking it away, but just it's, it's at least covered over. And, and, and when they celebrated that Passover with Jesus, it says in the Gospels that then they walked over, followed Jesus across the Kidron Valley over to an olive grove called Gethsemane. Now, I've been to Israel probably over a dozen times, and do you know what I think is the most special and significant site in that Bible land. It's not those <laughs> disputed places where they say, you know, Jesus did this and Jesus did that. You know, I mean, 2,000 years later, how do they know? You know, Jesus sneezed here, so we built the church of sneezology right on top of it. You know, how do they know? 
My my favorite site is not even up there in Galilee where it's more natural and maybe more unchanged. I've done the Jesus Trail walk all the way from Nazareth down to Capernaum by the Sea of Galilee and I where Jesus did ministry and miracles and I I just love being up there, but but that's 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 just a runner-up. I think the most special and significant site in all of the land of the Bible is uh, is where you go across the Kidron Valley and into that olive grove. Olive trees are still there today, that place called Gethsemane. Why? Why? It's all about the cup. The destiny of the entire human race depends on whether or not Jesus takes the cup in that olive grove called Gethsemane. Three times, did you hear Pastor Dennis read it? Three times. Jesus prays, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. What's going on here? I mean, I remember, I remember reading that uh, a number of years ago and thinking, Jesus, it sounds like you're trying to get out of going to the cross. It sounds like you're trying to back off your mission. That you, you don't want to go to the cross. But, you know, Jesus is already very familiar with the way Romans did their torturous executions. There's something that's happening right here, and the gospel writers make it clear that, and they say Jesus was deeply distressed. Another one says he was overwhelmed. The Greek word includes the meaning being astonished. What is there about the cup that overwhelms and astonishes Jesus? You know what it is? It's what's in the cup. It's the contents of the cup that he finds so repulsive, and he recoils. Everything that is not him, everything that he has not been about, his perfect life has stayed clear of all of these things. Everything that he is not is in the cup, the hurt, the hate, the heartbreak, the unholy. It's filled to the brim with everything vile and foul and filthy that every human being has done over time. And and here he is asked to drink it. Here, you drink this until it is finished. What's in the cup goes all the way back to a perfect world where God created the first humans and gave our ancestors with their own free will a choice and they rejected closeness with God. And at that moment, selfishness and rebellion entered the cup. And then despite God's intervention and pleading with a brother Our first ancestor's son is killed by that brother. And jealousy and murder enter the cup. In subsequent centuries, so many people go their own way that Genesis says God is grieved as more hatred and greed and lies flood into the cup. And Jesus is, he's beginning to taste what sin is like. And he's asked to drink it. And he says, Father... If it be possible, is there any other way? But Christ's anguish is just starting as the centuries go by, as more sin fills the cup, and then the millennia go by and innocent people are killed, terrorized, raped, violated. There's racism, genocides, corruption, and destruction of the people and the planet, which means that injustice and violence find their place in the cup. 
Drugs and alcohol addictions imprison minds. Pornographers destroy souls. Lives are wasted. Children are violated. Some even by those who claim Jesus' holy name. And Jesus is repulsed and he cries again, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. But another child cries themselves to sleep because dad or mom is gone. Another reputation is destroyed by gossip and false accusations. Another man is deceived and betrayed by those he trusted. Another woman has a reason to say, me too. And then my failures, including every wrong thought or, or action or word that Keith Smith has ever done collects in the cup that Jesus is asked to drink in Gethsemane. Am I exaggerating? No, actually I'm understating it. I don't have time to list all the contents that were in that cup. The prophet Isaiah uses the all word. He says, God, the Lord laid on the Messiah, Jesus, the iniquity of us all, all, all. The Apostle Paul says, he who knew no sin, he who had no sin, became sin for us all. You know the worst part of it? I haven't got to the worst part of it yet. If Jesus drinks the cup, it will mean that his father will be forced to turn his back on his own son. Jesus, because of our sin that he bears, comes under God's wrath, God's punishment, God's judgment. I mean, the nails Jesus could take, the whipping he could endure, the abandonment of those that he's about to die for, he could bear that. But if Jesus drinks the revolting poison of our sin, it means that he will be separated from the one who is inseparable to him. And that's exactly what Jesus experiences. The prayer that started in Gethsemane with Abba, Father, gets to a point where Jesus is praying from the cross, not Abba, not Father. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So before we take this cup in this communion service, Let's look at three truths that have the potential to help every one of us. Number one, value our lives. And number two, view our future totally differently. And the first one is this. Watch this. Jesus knew what was in the cup before he drank it. Have you ever thought, well, if God knew what I was like, he sure wouldn't like me. Don't put up your hand. Or so-and-so, if they knew it, listen, how many understand God knows the worst about you and he still loves you? Listen to Romans 5 verse 8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How many understand Jesus knew what he was in for before he went to the cross? He didn't get on the cross and say, wow, if I knew that there were going to be this evil, I sure wouldn't have done this for them. No, no. And he said, remember that. Remember my sacrifice. Remember what I think of you. Remember how I value you. At the Passover, Jesus said, remember, remember. Why does he choose his death as what he wants us to remember? Why did he pick that out? Why didn't he say, remember, I rose from the dead for you? Well, he knew we'd have no problem remembering the power of God 
to raise us from the dead and give us everlasting life. He, he knew we'd have no problem remembering that good news of joy. But Jesus asks us to remember his death. Do you know why? Because if you skip over Good Friday in a rush to get to Easter Sunday morning, you're going to miss how much you are loved by God. To see what he did for you. You see, we know how much we're loved and valued by what someone is willing to sacrifice so that we can live. How many know he gave it all? He gave everything. He gave everything. Jesus knew what was in the cup before he drank it. And let's remember that he knew the worst about us, and yet he still loved us. Amen? Second, Jesus chose to drink what we put in the cup. Let's look at first. Jesus chose. Jesus chose. When Jesus was arrested in Gethsemane, Peter pulled out his sword to defend Jesus. What does Jesus say? Peter, put away your sword. Do you not know that right now I have the power to call on the Father and he'll send 12 legions of angels, that's 50 to 70,000 angels, right now to get me out of here? I'm choosing to do this. At any time, I could say, beam me up, Father, and I'll be out of here. He'd already told his disciples, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. My, it's my own choice to do this. And then he said, greater love has no one than someone who lays down their life for others. Jesus chose. How many know it was his decision? His decision to do what? To drink what we put into the cup. You know, this is where karma gets turned upside down and inside out. <laughs> If you're looking for an illustration of karma on Good Friday, go somewhere else. Jesus is not getting what he deserves. Jesus is taking what we deserve. Jesus doesn't get the punishment he had coming to him. Jesus takes the punishment we had coming to us. C.S. Lewis was asked if you had to sort of take just one word to describe the Christian faith following Jesus, what would it be? He said, that's yeah, easy. He said, it would be the word grace. The word grace. Jesus does not ask us to do karma or religion. He provides for us grace. What is grace? Watch this. G-R-A-C-E. God's riches at Christ's expense. He paid it all. Mercy means that we don't get what we deserve. The judgment, the wrath, the punishment. Grace means we get what we don't deserve. A second chance. Love, forgiveness, and eternal life. You know, Peter watched it all happen that Easter weekend. And uh, he was there for the interrogations. And he, he saw Jesus, and he writes this, but he says, you know, Jesus never sinned nor ever deceived anyone. He did not retaliate when he was insulted, nor threaten revenge when he suffered. He left his case in the hands of God, who always judges fairly. He personally carried our sins in his body on the cross, so that we can be dead to sin and live for what is right. By his wounds, you are healed. Once you were like sheep who wandered away, but now you have turned to your shepherd, the guardian of your souls. You know, in ancient times when someone said, you know, I'm not going to eat or drink until this happens, that was, that was the language of an oath. 
That's what Jesus is doing there. When he talks about reunion, he's making an oath. He says, I will not eat of this bread. I will not drink of this cup until I drink it anew with you in the Father's kingdom. That's a promise, a reunion in heaven. You know, and then there was that. And then remember when Jesus was ascending into heaven? Have you ever read about that? Acts chapter 1. And Jesus is going up into the sky, disappears into the clouds, and they stand gazing. But the promise that was that he's going to come back the very same way. So get busy. Don't look at the skies right now. You've got things to do, but he is going to return someday the very same way that he has left. My oldest grandson, because he's the oldest, uh, he bears the uh, burden of the heaviest theology from his grandpa pastor. And so we were one day, and I just, uh, just delighting in this uh, little grandson. And I said, I just couldn't help. I said, you know how much Poppy loves you? I said, he loves you. Do you think he loves you this much? I stretched out my hands as far as they could go. Yeah, he, he agreed that he was valued and worthy of that. One time we were walking uh, in the near north where we have some land and we're walking down the road and just seeing him enjoying it. And I just, it's so, so delighting in this little life of the next generation. And, and uh, I, 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 I just had to one up what I had said. So I said, I said, Reuben, I said, see how big the sky is? See that big blue sky? Look up at the sky, look how far it goes. Do you know how much Poppy loves you? Bigger than the sky. Bigger than the sky. Let me ask you today in this room, do you know how much Father God loves you? Do you know how much he loves you? Don't get ahead of me. <laughs> Look at his arms outstretched on the cross. His body broken, his blood shed, he separated from his Father, all for you. He loves you this much. And you know what? He's coming back for you. He wants to spend eternity with you in heaven forever. In a glorified body. And so, when you look at the sky, <laughs> just remind yourself, how much does he love me? How many know he loves me so much? You know, he died for me. He's returning for me. He loves me. Now you can say it. Bigger than the sky. Bigger than the sky. Oh, thank you for your love, Lord. And that's why he chose to drink what you put into the cup. Because he loves you that much. Third, now Jesus invites us to drink from the cup that is cleansed by his grace. In our communion service, in a few moments, I'm going to invite you to take the cup. Don't worry, it's clean. This is the cup of the new covenant. <laughs> the contents have been replaced. The cup that was once filled with terminal infection has been cleansed completely and is now filled with Christ's forgiveness. Hate has been replaced by healing. Poison has been replaced by purity. Ashes are replaced by beauty. Wrath is replaced by righteousness. The wages of sin are replaced by the gift of eternal life through Jesus. The cross that was meant to kill has become our victory. Oh, and by the way, there's no more need for confusion about the fifth cup. The rabbis were right. The Messiah did come and he resolved that once and for all. The cup, listen to me, the cup of God's wrath is 
the cup of God's salvation. They're the same cup. And what about the forerunner? The forerunner did a positive ID on the Messiah. One day by the Jordan River with the crowd of followers, he pointed over to the Messiah, Jesus, and he said, listen to his words, Behold the Lamb of God, who doesn't just cover over, who takes away the sins of the world. Now maybe you understand why the, for me, the most special and significant site in the land of the Bible is that little tiny piece of Middle Eastern real estate in the midst of olive trees and sleeping disciples where Father God invites his son. He said, he said take this cup, take this cup. And Jesus says, Father, is there any other way? I don't want to be separated from you. I, I, I can't bear the sin. But although I hate sin, I love the sinner more. So, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Then in the distance, you see some torches flicker in the night. It's Roman soldiers with Judas Iscariot, the betrayer, leading the procession. And they make their way across the Kidron Valley, up into the Gethsemane area where the olive trees are. And Jesus sees them coming. And he goes and he wakes up his disciples with these words, Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. And Jesus is up off his knees now. He stands unwavering. When Peter pulls out his sword... What Jesus says is very revealing. He says, Peter, shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Judas can betray him now. His sleepy followers can flee. Pilate, Herod, Caiaphas can interrogate him all they want. The bloodthirsty crowd can call for his gory execution. The soldiers can mock him and whip him, force him to carry his cross and then nail him to it. The decision's already been made. Jesus knows what's in the cup. And he chooses to drink what you and I put in the cup. And now he invites us to drink from the cup that is cleansed by his grace. Let's pray. As communion servers make their way to service, how many in this room would say, Pastor Keith, if you'll pray with me, I'm ready to say yes to the love and the life and the forgiveness of Jesus. I understand what he did for me and I need his forgiveness as much as anybody. Have you said yes to following Jesus? How many in this room would welcome the opportunity to say yes to the grace of Jesus? I invite you, wherever you're seated, upstairs or downstairs, just to, just to whisper this prayer with me. You know, you've got to start somewhere. So why not just start now where you understand what Jesus did for you? It doesn't mean that you're going to be perfect. Jesus is the only perfect one. How many know that's the reason why we needed a Savior? We needed someone to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. So I invite you to pray this prayer with me. And as you open your heart to Jesus, he will come in. And it'll be like a new birth, a whole new beginning as you start to follow Jesus today. I invite you just to pray this prayer. I'll give you an opportunity just to whisper the words after me as we pray this prayer together. Jesus, thank you for drinking the cup for me. 
I receive the forgiveness you died to bring me. I want to follow you from this day forward. When I stumble and fall, help me up again. By your grace, I will follow you all the days of my life. Right into heaven's reunion when I die. Thank you, Jesus, that you're my Savior. In your name. Amen. Make sure you don't miss a message by subscribing to this podcast. All creative content and production for this podcast is provided by the One Church Creative Team.